an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The topic here is uh, Islam's view of Christianity, and this is very important, obviously, for many geopolitical issues, and also because many people in the church have the uh, question before them of what kind of common cause we can make, if any, and what kind of dialogue we can have, if any, with uh, Muslims. And certainly there has been an apparent movement in the other direction in the terms of the uh, initiative by Islamic scholars to reach out to Christians. And so you may recall the Common Word document, you may have heard of this, that uh, was signed by over 100 Islamic scholars, some of the most prominent Muslim scholars in the world, a few years back, and addressed to Pope Benedict XVI, as well as to many, many other Christian leaders of all denominations. And it was widely hailed as an example of a form of Islam that was moderate, that was peaceful, and that shared many, many perspectives with Christians and many, many beliefs with Christianity, such that it would be reasonable to assume from that that there would be some common ground that we could find that would be the basis for mutually beneficial action. And so let's start with that. The common word itself, the title of it, comes from the Quran, the Holy Book of Islam, which I happen to have here with me tonight. And it is a statement that is from the third chapter of the Quran, verse 67, which says, 61 rather, tell whoever disputes with you on this matter, after true knowledge has come to us, come let us summon our sons and your sons and our women and your women and ourselves and yourselves and let us pray together and invoke the curse of Allah on those who lie. And it goes on, say, people of the book, which is the Quran's term for primarily Jews and Christians, anybody who has a book that is revealed by God. And it says, come to a common word between us and you. And so that's where the title of the thing comes from. But then, the statement goes on to say, the Quran goes on to say, that we will serve none but Allah and shall associate none with him in his divinity, and that some of us will not take as others as lords other than Allah. So come to a word common between us and you, that we shall serve none but Allah and shall associate none with him in his divinity, and that some of us will not take others as lords other than Allah. Chapter 3, verse 64 of the Quran. Now, come to a common word between us and you, that we will worship none but Allah and associate no others with him. One of the most important messages of the Quran is that God is one, that there is the only God, there is only one God, and only God is worthy to be worshipped, and that anyone who associates others in worship with God has committed the most serious sin of all, which is shirk, S-H-I-R-K, like shirk, but shirk in Islamic theology is the worst thing, the worst sin, worse than murder, worse than anything that a human being can commit to associate partners with Allah. Now, the kicker of that is, for Christians, that 
when we acknowledge that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh and is worthy of worship, then according to the Islamic perspective, we are committing shirk. We are associating partners with Allah. And so when we are invited to come to a common word, as the document has it, with Muslims, the upshot of it, the result of it, the fruit that they hope will come from it, is that we will stop associating partners with Allah, which means stop acknowledging Jesus Christ as divine, and accept him as merely a human messenger of God, as the Quran styles it. In other words, that will become Muslims. The common word, in other words, is not really an invitation to dialogue at all. It is an invitation to convert to Islam. And the common ground that is that we are invited to work on in order to have this dialogue is only to the end that we will ultimately become Muslims. Now this may seem very harsh. It may seem like, well, you're, you're, you're really not being fair to them. So they took this little piece of the Quran and they used it as the title of this, but you're drawing conclusions that are unwarranted as a result of that. And I think that's a fair thing to say until you start looking at what Islam teaches about Christianity, about Jesus Christ, and about Christians. And so that's what we will spend a little time on now. The thing about the Quran is that it is presented as being a revelation that is equal to and essentially the same in substance, the Quran asserts this, as the earlier messages that were given to Moses and to Jesus. In Islamic tradition, we are told that Muhammad, as the messenger of Allah, was in a cave on Mount Hira near Mecca in Arabia, and he was praying. And that suddenly the angel Gabriel appeared to him, the same angel who appeared to Our Lady and told her that she would be the mother of Jesus. And the angel Gabriel told him to recite. And he was terrified and he said, I can't read, how can I recite? And the angel insisted and finally Muhammad relented and over the next 23 years he received the Quran piecemeal from Gabriel at various times when he would appear to him or just tell him messages. And that the Quran was the perfect book, the eternal book. As a matter of fact, the Ummah of Kitab, the mother of the book, is in paradise with Allah. There are three eternal things in Islam, even though there's only one God. There are three things that have perdured for all eternity, and they are God, his throne, and his books. He delivered that book through Gabriel in a perfect form, and it was collected together to make this book, the Quran. And the Quran tells you, as I said, that it confirms the message given to the earlier prophets, specifically the Torah and the Injil, the Torah and the Gospel, which were the messages given, according to the Quran, to Moses and to Jesus. In other words, the Gospel in the Quran is not the Gospel as we would understand it as being the message about Jesus Christ, the good news of the salvation brought to the world through Christ, but rather it is a book, like the Quran, that was delivered to the Prophet Jesus. According to Islamic tradition, we need this too. 
Yes, good evening. I'll just be singing a few numbers. <laughs> and uh, then we'll have questions. In any case, the Torah and the Gospel, Muhammad thus assumed, would be saying exactly the same things that he was getting from whoever he was getting them from. From Gabriel, according to his version of events. There were Jews in Arabia. There were three powerful Jewish tribes in Medina where Muhammad lived for the last half of his career as a prophet, the last 10 years. And there were various Christian groups in Arabia that he had dealings with also to a lesser degree. And so he went to them and he said, here is the new prophetic message from the one true God, and I am the new prophet. And the Jews said, uh, you're a prophet in the line of the biblical prophets, and you're not even Jewish? Sorry. And the Christians said, uh, Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, and we're not waiting for a new prophet, but thanks for coming anyway. <laughs> and what would you do if you were Muhammad in that instant? What would you do? He had two choices. He could say, oh, well, this is embarrassing. Never mind. I guess I'm not a prophet after all. And this is not a book from God. Because it did not, in other words, confirm, in reality, the, the, the teachings of the scriptures that the Jews and Christians had in their possession. Or what else? He only had two choices. He could say that, which was obviously inconceivable. Or he could say, so it's even worse than I thought. You have dared to tamper with your own scriptures. You have dared to take the messages that your prophets delivered to you from the one true God, and you have altered their contents and even their words, altered their meaning, altered their interpretation, in other words, and their wording, to erase references to my coming. Yeah. <laughs> now, that's all you had. Those are your only two choices. And so it is part of Islamic tradition, standard, mainstream Islamic teaching, that Judaism and Christianity as we know them today, Judaism in its, all its uh, manifestations, Reform, Conservative, Orthodox, and all the various strains of Christianity, all the various sects and denominations, all of them are astray from the true teachings of Moses and Jesus. And so it's not coincidental. I was reading to you from uh, chapter 3. You can open your Qurans to chapter 3, <laughs> verse uh, 67, which is right after the uh, place where I was reading to you before about the common word. And we have a bit about Abraham. Abraham, of course, you know as the father of the three great Abrahamic faiths that are all sister faiths, and can't we all just get along? But in the Quran, actually, what it says is this. People of the book, that's us. Why do you dispute with us about Abraham, even though the Torah and the Gospel were not revealed until after his time? Do you not understand? Abraham was neither a Jew nor a Christian. 
See, he's saying the Jews and the Christians are saying, well, Abraham was a Jew, and the Christians are saying Abraham was a Christian, whatever Christians he might have been encountering. But it says Abraham was neither a Jew nor Christian. He was a Muslim. Abraham was a Muslim. How could Abraham be a Muslim when Muhammad died in the year 632, several thousand years after Abraham? And he originated this thing, I just told you, when on, in the year 610, he went up on the mountain into the cave and was praying and received the first visitation from Gabriel. And suddenly, a man who lived a couple thousand years before that is supposed to have held to the same faith? Well, obviously. Because, you see, the original faith of all the prophets was Islam. Because Islam is the true faith from the true God. And so Abraham, you see, was a Muslim, as the Quran tells us. Moses was a Muslim. Jesus was a Muslim. And then what happened? Then their followers, out of a desire for selfish gain, out of a desire to get rich, out of a desire for whatever other creaturely comforts, they dared to tamper with their own scriptures, with the Torah and the gospel, to create what we know of today as Judaism and Christianity. And then the Quran was delivered sometime later in order to correct the record and to restore the true teachings of Moses and Jesus. And there's evidence of this tampering all over. You look, for example, at the Gospel of John in the New Testament. I'm talking about the real one now. And in there, you will see that Jesus says, there are many things that I have to tell you, but you cannot bear to hear them now. And the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, will come and he will guide you into all the truth. Now, paraclete, as it happens, is very close to another Greek word, parakletos, or parakletos. Anyway, it's a Greek word, look it up. That uh, means the praised one which is what Muhammad means. And so in Surah 61 of the Quran, you have Jesus saying this. Call to mind when Jesus, son of Mary, said, O children of Israel, I am Allah's messenger to you. I verify the Torah which has come before me and I give you the glad tidings, that was a nice touch, the glad tidings of a messenger who shall come after me, his name being Ahmed. Ahmed meaning the praised one, a cognate of Muhammad. And you see, they tampered with it to create all this Holy Spirit business. Really, Jesus was saying, Muhammad is going to come. Now, why would they do that? Why would the Christians have altered the teachings of their Islamic prophet in order to create this new and false religion? There is a story in Islamic tradition in the Hadith, which are the records of Muhammad's words and deeds, normative for Muslim behavior, because Muhammad is called in the Quran, chapter 33, verse 21, the excellent example of conduct. And Muslims take that very seriously. Muhammad is the excellent example of conduct in every way. If Muhammad did it, it's right. If he did it, it's exemplary. And so, for example, you have the fact that uh, embarrasses many Islamic uh, spokesmen in the West today that when Muhammad was 51, 
He, con he contracted a marriage with a six-year-old girl and consummated it when he was 54 and she was nine. But because he's the excellent example of conduct, that's perfectly right. So the Ayatollah Khomeini, when he became the leader and when we created the Islamic Republic of Iran in 1979, one of the first things that he did after the relatively secular rule of the Shah was to lower the legal marriageable age of girls to nine because the prophet did it, it must be right. The aid workers went into Afghanistan after the Taliban was toppled, that is, after they were toppled the first time, in 2003, and they went into refugee camps, and they found that uh, half the girls of second grade age were already married, and virtually all of the girls older than that were already married. And this was because Muhammad did it, it's right. Now, Muhammad, as the excellent example of conduct, this creates a very peculiar situation for morals, but there's more to it than that as well. That when you have the Jews and the Christians teaching these false religions, how he behaved toward them also becomes normative. Now, I was telling you that he why is, I mean, I was asking the question, why would they tamper with their scriptures? Why would we tamper with our scriptures as Christians? There is a story in the Hadith of a delegation of Christians from southern Arabia, from Najran, which is around Yemen. And there was a, a, a large Christian community there at that time going to see Muhammad. And on the way to Medina, the leader of this Christian group says to his followers, we know this man is a prophet. We know that he fulfills the prophecies that are in our scriptures. But when we get there, we must contradict him at every turn, argue with him in every way, and not accept anything he says. Because the Byzantines, the Eastern Roman Empire, the Christian Empire, they give us money. They give us a steady stipend. And if we acknowledge that this man's a prophet, they'll cut us off. So in other words, out of a desire for filthy lucre, they refuse to acknowledge Muhammad as a prophet. And you will still find to this day there's no concept in Islamic theology at all of people rejecting the religion of Islam in good faith. There, there's no idea of that. We all know better. We were, we were born Muslims, as a matter of fact. And this is why converts to Islam are referred to as reverts by Muslims, even if they were never Muslim before. It's not like a revert who, who was born in the church and then leaves the church and comes back. Anybody who converts to Islam is a revert to Islam because everybody was originally a Muslim, just as the original religion of all the prophets was Islam. And then you might leave it and you might come back. But everybody knows better. The truth of it shines forth. And so if I don't accept it, it's because I know better, but I just want to get rich, as if that could be done doing this. But in any case, <clears throat> the excellent example of conduct also behaved in various ways toward the Jews and Christians. And this also is normative. And you, you understand now that he's acting toward them 
as toward people who have rejected him in bad faith. He already knows that they're hypocrites and liars. And there's more. You remember Abraham and the three great Abrahamic faiths. Well, Abraham is also an, ex an excellent example of conduct. And in chapter 60 of the Quran, Surah 60, verse 4, there's an extraordinary statement. It says, you have a, a good example, an excellent example, in Abraham and his companions, using exactly the same Arabic words, Uswa Hassanna, saying that Abraham is the excellent example, just like Muhammad is. But when it says that about Muhammad, in Surah 33, it's not qualified in any way. It is, uh, he's just an excellent example, period. But with Abraham, it is. You have an excellent example in Abraham and his companions. They said this to their people. We totally dissociate ourselves from you and from the gods that you worship instead of Allah. We renounce you. And there has come to be enmity and hatred between us and you until you believe in Allah, the one true God. That's Abraham as an excellent example. That there's enmity and hatred between him and his family and all unbelievers until they accept his religion. But you may not emulate, Abraham is not an excellent example, when Abraham says to his father, certainly I will ask pardon for you. Certainly I will ask pardon for you. So in other words, imitate Abraham in hating the unbelievers. Do not imitate Abraham in praying for them. Abraham's not an excellent example in that regard. So what does all this have to do with dialogue? Obviously, we are faced with, if we are dealing with Muslims who are informed about their faith, knowledgeable about it, and sincerely believing in it, we're dealing with people who believe us to be morally compromised renegades from the true faith. And there's more. Actually, my watch gave out, so I could just go on forever. And uh, it's uh, OK. I have like 20 minutes, maybe 15, 20 minutes. OK. I was uh, actually in the airport earlier, and uh, Obama was in Philadelphia. And so nobody could go in and out of Philadelphia. And so I was very late. My flight was delayed, and I missed the connection. And, uh, and, and it was great because you know I fly all the time, it's a couple times a month at least. And so I have these wonderful frequent flyer miles, and sometimes I get first class. And so it was great. When I got to the airport this morning, I had first class to Philadelphia and first class from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh. But because of Obama, <laughs> I lost my connection to Pittsburgh. And I, was, I lost first class. And I was in a middle seat to, from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh. And I was watching the first class people board the, the plane. And I was thinking, why do the wicked prosper? <laughs> and this is, of course, a very hallowed biblical principle, the subject of many psalms and many other meditations in many other books of the scripture. Why do the wicked prosper? And we know, of course, fundamentally from the cross that sometimes the wicked win. Sometimes the people who are set against everything that is good and right and true, they win out. They won't win out in the end, but there's no justice in this world, or very little and we can grab hold of what we can. In Islam, however, 
there is justice in this world, and the wicked don't prosper. The wicked, as a matter of fact, must not prosper. It is the job of the Muslims to make sure that the wicked don't prosper. This is a fundamental difference between Islam and Christianity. The idea of vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay, is completely foreign to Islam. In Islam, the Muslims are the executors of God's wrath on this earth. And those renegades, that's us, who have rejected, even though we know better, the true teachings of our own prophet, Jesus, and have rejected the truth of Muhammad and the truth of the Quran, we have to be made to suffer in this world as well as the next. And this is, of course, the Quran's martial theology. It's teaching about the warfare against unbelievers which is a fundamental aspect of the Islamic doctrine of jihad. Jihad means struggle, and there are all kinds of struggles. There are all kinds of jihads. The Islamic Republic of Iran has a Department of Agricultural Jihad. Uh, it's part of the government of Iran. But it doesn't mean blowing things up on the farm. It means struggling to increase crop yields. However, nonetheless, at the same time, the fundamental meaning, the primary meaning of jihad in Islamic theology is warfare against unbelievers, not to affect their conversion. And see, this is, this is a very deceptive thing that a lot of Muslim spokesmen do in the United States. They say, uh, there's no forced conversion. There's no compulsion in religion, which is chapter 2, Surah 2, verse 256 of the Quran. There's no forced conversion, and there's no jihad to convert people to Islam. And so therefore, they want you to think there's no doctrine of warfare. Well, that's a little bit of a bait and switch or a sleight of hand or something like, something like that. Because there is no forced conversion, but the object of jihad is to subjugate the unbelievers. Chapter 9, verse 29 of the Quran says, fight against those who do not believe in Allah and his messenger and do not forbid what he has forbidden, even if they are of the people of the book, that's us, until they pay the jizya, which is a tax, with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. Now that verse is extraordinarily important because it became the foundation in Islamic theology for a whole superstructure of laws that mandated, in line with the idea that the wicked must not prosper and the Muslims are the executors of God's wrath on this earth, mandated that the Muslims must fight against the Jews and the Christians and create a system of society in which those people are denied basic rights so that they pay this tax that the Muslims are exempt from paying and that they feel themselves subdued and they submit to the Muslims and to the hegemony of the Muslims. And so it's part of Islamic law, even to this day, although these laws are not enforced today for a variety of reasons, that we can get into later if time permits. The Islamic law mandates that uh, Christians in Islamic lands may not build new churches or repair old ones. So obviously their communities are perpetually in decline. Uh, a Muslim man can marry a non-Muslim woman, but a Muslim woman cannot marry an, a Muslim man. And the idea is the man is the head of the household, so the households of the Muslims always grow, and the households of the non-Muslims always decline. 
all sorts of little niggling things too, like if a Muslim is walking down the street, like in the old Jim Crow South, the, the Christians have to get off the sidewalk and let them pass. They cannot build buildings higher than the Muslims. They cannot hold authority over Muslims. So that some of this, although I said it's not fully enforced today in the Islamic world, all through the Islamic world, it's kind of a cultural hangover, so that there is no country that's majority Muslim in which non-Muslims enjoy full equal rights with the Muslims. Not one, not even Turkey. And in most of them, because non-Muslims must not hold authority over Muslims, the Christians are a very low class in the society because they only take the most menial jobs. And so the, the nickname for Christians in Pakistan is street sweepers because that's what they do. They can sweep the streets, they can take out the garbage, that kind of thing. But to rise in the corporate world, forget it, that's closed off to them. And I know Christians from Syria and other relatively tolerant countries like that, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, although Egypt is changing radically now, um, where they left because they would find a ceiling, a glass ceiling, uh, when they would apply for jobs. And say, what's your name? George. Oh, sorry, we got nothing for you. And then Mahmoud would go in and get the job. And this is all part of Islamic law. It's part of the natural order of things, as far as they're concerned, that the Christians have to feel themselves subdued. Now, if you consider where we started and about dialogue, the idea of Islamic law is to establish itself all over the world because it's the perfect model for the perfect society derived from the perfect book given to the prophet in perfect form from the one true God who had it with him forever in paradise. And so there is no model of society that is superior to Islamic law and it's the mandate of the Muslims to fight in various ways, not necessarily by hot warfare, to establish that law all over the world. And so, uh, will Muslim groups and Muslim individuals enter into dialogue with Christians? Of course. Do they do that? Will they enter into cooperative ventures? Obviously. We saw that uh, at, the, uh, at the UN when it was Muslim groups allying, Muslim countries allying with the Vatican to defeat anti-life initiatives. But at the same time, they understand not that they are dealing with equals, not that they are dealing with partners, not that there is going to be a genuine interchange of ideas and a, an attempt to reach a mutual understanding. But all of this is just a vehicle either to expand the hegemony of Islamic law or to make the Christians believe that there really isn't anything to be concerned about and that they don't need to be worried about jihad or about Sharia or about Islam spreading in the West because it's really not anything to uh, uh, contradict any of our basic freedoms or the model of society that we enjoy in the West with the freedom of speech and the freedom of conscience and so on. It's no problem. And that is also because Muhammad also said war is deceit. And Surah 328 of the Quran says, do not take believer, unbelievers, do not take unbelievers as your friends and protectors in preference to believers. And anybody who does this has nothing to do with the law, unless you're doing it to guard yourselves against them. Now, unless you're doing it to guard yourselves against them, 
let's see what they say that means because, you know, why should you believe me? The Quran that I have here today is a very, uh, very excellent addition towards understanding the Quran with a commentary by a very prominent Islamic scholar, Sayyid Abdullah Maududi. Maududi was a Pakistani. He died in 1979. And his writings are uh, influential internationally. If you go to your local Islamic bookstore, I don't know if you have one in Steubenville, um, <laughs> but uh, if you go to an Islamic bookstore in Pittsburgh, I'm sure there's one there, you'll find Maududi's writings. If you go to islamicbookstore.com or islamicity.com, you will find Maududi's writings. And I actually got this, I was in London at the Finsbury Park Mosque. The Finsbury Park Mosque was uh, notorious a few years back because uh, the imam there was a man named Abu, Ham Abu Hamza al-Masri. And Abu Hamza was, uh, he, he had been in an uh, unfortunate accident involving a bomb. And he lost an eye and a hand. And he had a hook for a hand, and he was on his captain hook. And he was very fierce and forthright in his uh, teaching about how Muslims had to wage war against unbelievers. And he ultimately was involved in plotting to that effect, and now he's in jail. And so I went into this Finsbury Park Mosque a few summers ago, and uh, the, uh, there was a guy there who was very friendly and very helpful, and he said, yes, uh, we had some trouble here a few years back, but it's all over with, and now everybody here is moderate and peaceful, and he gave me this Quran and a lot of other books. I had to get a big shopping bag. He was a very nice guy. And this Quran with the notes from Maududi, you understand, is from the new moderate peaceful people in uh, the Finsbury Park Mosque. And it explains that verse, Maududi's commentary on that verse that I was referring to, Surah 3, verse 28. Do not take believers, do not, I keep doing that, do not take unbelievers as your friends and protectors in preference to believers unless you're doing it to guard yourselves against them. This is how he explains that. This means that it is lawful for a believer helpless in the grip of the enemies of Islam and in imminent danger of severe wrong and persecution to keep his faith concealed and to behave in such manner as to create the impression that he is on the same side as his enemies. He is, in other words, it is lawful, it is divinely mandated as far as Muslims are concerned to, under certain circumstances, create the impression that they are on the same side as their enemies. Now, does this mean that every Muslim who reaches out to you in friendship or every Muslim group that reaches out to a church or to a Christian group in dialogue is trying to deceive you? No, certainly not. But it does mean that it does happen and that we need to keep a steady and sober regard for the possibility that it could happen. And this is the great hazard of dialogue with Muslim groups in the United States, that we have people who don't know anything about Islam I mean, why would anybody know anything about Islam? I read the Quran, so you don't have to. But <laughs> most people, they, they have better things to do. And, and I certainly understand that. But uh, they go to these churches, and they tell people Islam is a religion of peace, and Sharia is just a uh, private moral code, Islamic law is just a private moral code, like uh, Catholic marriage law or Jewish law. And it's nothing to be concerned about. It's not incompatible with Western society or values. And people buy it. Why wouldn't they? 
And the hazard about that is, is that it leaves them susceptible to threats that they don't understand are coming and leaves them essentially naive and complacent in the face of people who do not have their best interests at heart. And so while I think that there is no reason not to talk to Muslim groups, it's very important to be informed, to be aware, to keep your eyes open, and to understand how Islam views Christianity. And if you keep in mind the things that I have touched on very briefly this evening about how the Quran views Christians as being the renegade followers of a heretical version of the true teaching of Jesus, well then, it can change your perspective on an awful lot of things. For example, the Imam Faisal Abdul Rauf is uh, one of the most important and leading moderate Muslim spokesman in the United States. And he is the Imam at the, at the Ground Zero Mosque, the mosque that they're building by the World Trade Center site uh, in New York. And he, uh, he has all kinds of people who uh, think very highly of him, including the mayor of New York and the president of the United States. The State Department sends him out on uh, trips to Muslim countries, supposedly to build bridges. Uh, between the United States and these countries and so on. Very important men. And he uh, won wide accolades last year in the middle of the Ground Zero Mosque controversy when he said, I'm a Jew. I have always considered myself a Jew. And everybody said, oh, look how wonderful and tolerant and ecumenical he is and broad-minded. How wonderful. This is not the kind of guy that's going to fly planes into a tower. This is the kind of guy we can deal with. But look, he was just stating standard Islamic theology that the true Judaism and the true Christianity is Islam. Moses was a Muslim, Jesus was a Muslim, Abraham was a Muslim, and so he's, as a follower of the true teachings of Moses, he's a Jew. He wasn't actually saying anything other than standard Islam. But you'd have to know the context, the backdrop of his own belief system in order to understand that. Now ultimately, human nature is everywhere the same and people are people everywhere. And there's a spectrum of belief and knowledge and fervor among Muslims, just as there is among Catholics and among every other religious group. There are people who know all about it and are very serious about it. There are people who know all about it and don't try to put it into practice in their lives at all. There are people who don't know anything about it and don't care. But if you ask them, they'll say, yes, I'm a Catholic, or yes, I'm a Muslim. And so, also, it is important to understand where the person you are dealing with is coming from. There is a uh, television show that's just about to start called All American Muslim, getting a lot of publicity. And uh, I saw the first episode. Um, I don't think it's out yet, but it was sent to me. And I watched it in the, thanks to Obama, I, I had time to watch it in the airport. <laughs> and uh, the, the people that is, are depicted, the idea is, is that there's all this uh, alleged hatred and bigotry toward Muslims in the United States, although actually in real life, hate crimes so classified against uh, Jews and against African Americans are many times, eight, eight times or more, more frequent than uh, hate crimes against Muslims. But in any case, there is this idea that uh, Muslims are the victim of uh, some kind of uh, hatred, and so, this t television show shows just ordinary people living ordinary lives. 
and there's this one woman and she wants to open up a club and there's another woman and she's getting married to a Catholic and, uh, and the thing is is that they both say that they are not observant, that they're not really religious and they're people who are very religious in their family who don't approve of what they're doing in various ways. And of course, that's true in all groups. But that doesn't make it Islam. If there is a Muslim who doesn't want to kill me or doesn't want to subjugate me, then, well, I don't really think I have to thank people for not wanting to kill me. But uh, that doesn't change the teachings of Islam. Just as the fact that uh, studies show that most Catholics contracept doesn't change the teachings of the church against contraception. The teachings of the church are what they are, even if nobody pays attention to them. And the teachings of Islam are what they are, based on the Quran, based on the Sunnah, which is derived from the example of Muhammad in the Hadith. And the schools of Islamic jurisprudence are unanimous in teaching that it is part of the responsibility of Muslims to wage war against unbelievers and to subjugate them under the rule of Islamic law. So ultimately, this is, in a very real sense, as the uh, phrase is, has it, a clash of civilizations. This is a struggle between radically different visions of what is the good and perfect society, or even just the best society we can manage on this earth, given the realities of human nature and of sin. And in this, however we may deal with individual Muslims, whether we are dealing with our friends or in dialogue in some formalized setting, we have to remember that we have in Catholic civilization, in Judeo-Christian civilization, a vision of life, a model of society that has been the foundation for the greatest civilization on earth and has given the whole world notions of human rights and of the basic dignity of the human person that are universally accepted, quite even far beyond the uh, confines of the church and of Christendom, and that are radically different from these ideas of uh, warfare, subjugation, the denial of the freedom of conscience. Muhammad said, if anybody changes his religion, leaves Islam, kill him, and so on. And so if we stand up, I think ultimately, if we stand up for who we are and proclaim it without hesitation and without fear, come what may, then there is no doubt whatsoever that the truth will be triumphant. But if we trim and uh, dissemble out of fear, as so many public officials are doing today, or out of a, uh, the desire for gain that Islamic theology imputes to us, then uh, there's no doubt that uh, this vision of society, of uh, the subjugation of the unbelievers, and a radical transformation of uh, Western free societies, it, it, it would be inevitable. And so that is the challenge before us today, and certainly in the coming decades. Thanks very much. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com be transformed by the renewal of your mind.